Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. Activate interlock. Dynatherms connected. Infracells up. Mega thrusters are go. I feel like we should be playing the theme of Thunderbirds here. Voltron. It's Voltron. All right. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Amber. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. Your podcast of having an amazing time in an adventure you've never done before. This week, we are exploring adventures that we've never been on before. You know, we all know that the games that we play have lots of tropes involved in them. And so a lot of times, playing the game can get a little bit formulaic and a little bit predictable. So what we want to do is we want to jazz it up. We want to say, hey, this is Bureau 13, but this is the kind of adventure you're doing, and this is really going to be fun because... Not only is it a good adventure, but it's got a twist in it that you've never done before. You have joined the most secret government agency that you have never heard of. The 13th Bureau of Justice, otherwise known as Bureau 13. You are a government agent charged with the duty of disposing of the greatest unnatural threats to the people and the, and the economy of the United States and Canada. You will work under the knowledge that you are funded by an organization so secret, even the highest government officials do not know of your existence. Welcome to the elite band of people who wander the dark streets of the night, ever searching for the horrors that should not exist in this modern age. You are a special agent, stalking the night fantastic. Bureau 13 is a Gen Con award-winning RPG of modern horror and paranormal adventure. It's available from Tritech Games at TritechGames.com in both the original editions and in the D20 edition, with a new Savage Worlds edition coming soon. Remember that wherever the supernatural waits, good and evil, the agents of Bureau 13 will be there. But the evil is growing. Blix, you said you had a lot of great ideas. Hit us with your best shot. You keep this up, and I'm going to start singing every time you say the lyric. <laughs> <laughs> Fire away! All right, so um, oh. I like the uh, – we, we were talking earlier. I like the one. Uh, I call it Artifact Recovery. Uh, and this, this is where we take uh, Bureau 13 and we throw in a little Indiana Jones. Um, where your mission is, uh, is is searching for some precious artifact, maybe maybe it's a race against um, some demons or, or some uh, worshippers or some followers trying to get it, or minions trying to get it before you get it, or or maybe you even don't know they're they're there. You're just being sent on to investigate, and it turns out you f- you find out, hey, the reason why the bureau got this clue uh, is because some psychic. Uh, I don't know, some psychic beacon went off or something or some kind of mystical beacon went off and uh, there's several other things looking for it as well. So you realize you're in a race against time and you may never even see the other group. You just know you're in a hurry. 
to get to it. So there, there could be that. There could be the, the, the race aspect of it. Uh, or it could just be a, a really tough investigation where you're having to put all those skills that you never – maybe not that you never get to use but that you don't get to use as often. So you're not um, not so much investigating a haunting per se like you were – like you would normally do. You're investigating you know, through history books and through the library and, and there may not even be any big bads. The adventure itself could be just the research and the exploration of trying to find something. So it may be an adventure where you don't pull a weapon at all or hit anyone or anything like that. Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe knock a guard out to try and sneak into an area or something like that. But um, I kind of like that because you don't have to fight anybody. There doesn't even have to be a bad guy at all. And you actually might be going up against law-abiding citizens, so you may not want to hurt any of them. Uh, you might be trying to steal something from a museum that they think is just a clay pot, and it turns out it's actually some magic thing that the bureau wants to get their hands on, but they don't want to, you know, they don't want anybody to know that they're getting it, so they they want to, you know, they ha- you have to steal it from a museum or something like that. Ooh, break the law for the good of mankind. This reminds me when I first played a, a live action role play, I took a look at my character sheet. And for the life of me, I could not understand why I had certain points in certain attributes. Because you never use these things. And I've always wanted to find a game that could put those kind of skills to use. Because mm-hmm. what's the point in having them if you're not going to use them? Yeah, your character has got four levels in, in, in auto repair. GM Rides Adventure, where, yeah, you could you be using those. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the kind of thing where you take an adventure like this. You take, you say, you're gonna. All right, so my the goal of my adventure is gonna be they're gonna recover this artifact, and then you you collect everybody's characters and you look at their skills, the skills they never get to use, and you throw those obstacles in their way. You know, let's say somebody is a good athlete. You know, they they rarely get to use it, even though most of the stuff you do as heroes is athletic. Just the skill doesn't get used enough, as far as I'm concerned. So maybe you have a a chase sequence where uh, another guy gets it before you. And he runs out onto the roof, and he's running along rooftops, jumping from rooftop to rooftop in some you know tightly packed uh, European town. And uh, you know you're you're running along, and and you don't maybe you don't have your guns because uh, the adventure started out. There was no need to have them. You didn't think you'd even have them, and uh, the bureau didn't want you bringing them along with you because uh, you might create an international incident or something to that effect. So you're actually having to chase this guy down and catch him. You can't just pop him off the edge of the roof. So that's where the person with the athletics goes, I got him, and he goes running across the roof, and you get to shine and get to use this skill that you rarely get to use, you know? Or use the gym to say, okay, the guy with athletics probably uses it all the time. So the couch potato who's sitting up on the tower watching things is the guy who sees the guy running across the roof, and you're going, there's no time for the guys to get up there. You're on the roof already. Right, right. You got to go after him. So the couch potato has got to use a skill he doesn't have or he only has at a low level. Let's say he has a low level, John. That gives him a really good excuse to raise that level for next adventure. Like when he gets to spend some experience points. I mean, sometimes it's, it's picking the skills they don't use all the time, how they ever use. And, you know, forcing them, you know, so the guy who's the computer whiz, he's the one stuck out front trying to get the truck running. While the guy who isn't the computer whiz is busy trying to hack into the, into the security system. You know things like that. You know, and you basically you put people in, into into positions where they where they're using skills they don't normally use. Even though there's no firing in this one, you know, it's like having the gun bunny being the guy who has to do the non-lethal takedown of somebody. Right. You know, so he's now he's got to use those fighting skills. He he's hardly ever uses because he pulls his guns out and shoots him with a taser bullet most times. 
if you run an adventure where you are using all the skills that you normally wouldn't use, then this could actually create a very different adventure. You have to be using a game system that provides all of those uh, secondary and diversion skills, like the original TriTac rules. Oh, yes. <laughs> but most game systems, as far as I know, don't provide all those tangential-type skills. But it means you end up using the unskilled roles for those that you can do then. You well, yeah, how's, how's a GM supposed to be able to anticipate that? Does he just go and look at all the skills you're good at, that everybody's good at, and say, okay, now I'm going to run an adventure that requires sewing because nobody has that skill? What if the only way you can win the queen's favor is she is really, really cold and you need to go make her a goose down blanket? Or you have to make clothing in order to impress at the ball. Yeah, yeah, but let's not make the emperor's new clothes here. We're not going down that road. No, no, no. We don't want that, no. Or the only way to, 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 to stop the menace is to finish the quilt that was started by Betsy Ross back at Yale in, in the 1700s. <laughs> you know, things like that. Where, okay, we have to quilt this. We have, do you know how to quilt? Uh, uh, no. Okay, we're using default skills. Okay, let's go. <laughs> I'm all for throwing people a loop every once in a while and like causing causing characters to have to do that. But if it's going to be a big adventure and I'm trying to get them to do something different, I'm, I'm trying to run something different, but I want them to really enjoy it, I will more than likely try to play to the strengths that uh, that a character has you know, and, re- and reward something that they paid for that they don't get to use too often because they built it as part of their character aspect. So let's say someone says, well, I'm, you know, I'm playing a character who became a Bureau 13 agent, but he used to be an engineer. He just, he got, you know, for whatever reason, he had, you know, psychic sense or something like that. So he joined the Bureau. But, you know, he's got this engineering skill that I put at D8 because to be an, an engineer, that's what I should have had, but I never, ever get to use it. Yeah. Or like a 10, I think a 10 in, in uh, D20, right? Sure, sure, a 10 in D20. Say, hey, you know, uh, an engineer is going to be essential in this adventure. You don't tell them that, but you you set it up. Now, if he doesn't see the opportunity now, and sometimes you got to beat players over the head with a with a wooden mallet. Yeah, clue by four. Yeah, right. The clue by four. Right. Exactly. I like that. You know, I never heard that before. That's pretty good. Um, but yeah, you got him with the clue by four and say, hey, you know, uh, engineering role might work here. You know, and that's oh uh, yeah, you know, but um. But yeah, I, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of of, re, of rewarding somebody who's built a character to you know to the character concept, uh, and, and is kind of taking a little bit of a punishment, and takes a backseat to everybody else because he didn't make him as just a combat machine, which is usually all that ever gets rewarded in an adventure. I think what we're really talking here is making adventures that aren't combat oriented. I mean, we're not saying don't have combat in them, but right. I play a character one time who he's a short order cook. That was his primary skill set: short order cook. You know, you looked at it and said, uh, how are you good in combat? Well, I got the basic training in beer from the Bureau. That's about it. I can I can shoot, give him the shotgun, and, you know, things like that. <laughs> right, but, you know, like with a short order cook, you could put them in a situation where they go into a, a restaurant and they're eating and, uh, you know, their food arrives and he's looking at it and he's just like, man, it's got to be the worst cook ever. Why, who would do this to a sandwich, you know? No, 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 no. Infiltration. You know, there's going to be a major dinner, and and the Brotherhood of the Floating Orb is having their is having a banquet. And you need to get in, get in there. Sure. These guys use his skills to pretend he's a famous French chef, or at least a line order cook, a sous, a sous chef. You well, know, if there's something you, that you you learn early on, and yeah. 
I'm not going to deny, I got this completely off of Doctor Who. If you want to get the info on something, if you're trying to infiltrate and reconnaissance, mm-hmm. work in the kitchen. That's where yeah. you're going to get all your information. The rest of the team's going to be dressed up as waiters. So, yeah, those interpersonal skills come in handy, you know. You know waiters have to be polite, and you know, and hopefully you've got some good, good persuasion skill to talk with them. Oh, this is the Brotherhood of the Floating Orb, and we don't really want them to know that we're here. <laughs> Yeah, diplomacy and gather information will come in really handy, maybe a little bit of sense motive, perhaps even bluff. Yeah. I'll tell you, another character or another uh, persona to take on if you're trying to infiltrate something and get information is uh, is a street bum. Because those guys sit around all day watching. I mean, they're doing stuff and nobody pays attention to them. People just walk right past them. Matter of fact, if they do see them, they purposely avoid them. So, like, if you want to infiltrate an area or, or you know, scout out an area, you could, you could pose as a street bum. You could talk to the other bums and see what they find. I'm, I'm using the term bum. I, I probably shouldn't use that term. I should say these poor homeless piece, homeless person. Yeah. <laughs> I would use the term hobo if I was a little bit older. <laughs> Fear of 1940. If there's something that you can't take for granted, it's that they're the eyes and the ears of the city. They see everything because nobody ever sees them. Right, Because oh, we choose to not see them. If you want infiltration, also another good one, janitors, cabbies, security guard. I mean, people that get access just by their job, and I mean, they can get in all sorts of places just because eh, it's the cleaning lady. Eh. Or it's the, the cabbie, you know, he, he knows the city. And you'd be surprised where you can go, who will let you walk just about anywhere if you put a roll of drawings under your arm and a hard hat on. So, so, how, would, so was, how would you wind us into a, into a venture you never had before then? I mean, how would we take these various elements? What I think we're talking about here is we're talking about societies of people that we're not used to dealing with. Uh, I think that the idea of saying a cabbie or something like that, if there was a society of cabbies of some kind, (laughs) if you would, as part of your adventure, create such a society, (laughs) then that would make it a more interesting adventure. I think the hobo idea is really good because they really did have a society. They had their own culture. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's see, another society. And I have my co-host Sven, his roommate, my former roommate, is a trucker. They have their own subculture. Yep. Ten to four, good buddy. If you were a trucker in a past occupation before you joined the Bureau, you know everything about the country, and they've got their own network of, I mean, they may not use CBs anymore, but they just have their own network of things that they do in places and, you know, all over the country, and in some cases, Canada and Mexico. So that that might be another good infiltration occupation that, I mean, it at the most you might get, you know, you can drive a big rig, but just as far as the information gathering and just the knowledge that you pick up being on the road, that might be another good occupation. The aspects of that society that are different than the society you're used to, that's what makes the adventure interesting. I mean, the ones we know of is we don't want to do the uh, wise guy culture. We all know that. That's not, you know, yeah. that's not new and different. We all know, in some ways, the, the standard cowboy tombstone culture. We all know the Irish cop culture. 
you know, that that's, those are the ones we don't want to do because those are the ones we're all familiar with. It's the other cultures that actually drive the adventure because of the things that they value might be surprising, might be different than what you value. It, now it may be a little passe, but the whole otaku Japanese anime culture, for those who are not familiar with it, is is very different. And the things that they value and the things that they're interested in and things that would outrage them or make them love you would be totally unexpected to some players if they weren't familiar mm-hmm. with that particular culture. So that's what I'm saying would be really great to add to your adventure. It could even, you know, as the main driving force in your adventure. Oh, dude, now, now you got me thinking of an adventure wrapped around the, a, an old samurai sword that was taken back in World War II by, by someone in the occupation forces. And it turns out it's a cursed sword, and it's but it's now in the possession of a, a uh, was it Naruto? Naruto. There we go, Naruto, thank you. Naruto, and, ma- and he's made it part of his costume. So, yeah, you're going to have to try to get away from that guy. And he may have been his uncle, some his hand down from his uncle or his dad, or it may have just showed up on eBay one day, and he bought it. So now you're trying to attract the guy who bought a, a cursed Japanese sword. Maybe the curse only happens at a certain time. So far, he's been lucky he has not been hit by the curse and, he, and forced to go out and, sl- and slay streetwalkers or whatever. You know, whatever the, sword, whatever the sword's curse is. You know, and the trick is now to hunt, hunt, hunt him down and get that sword from him. The way you'd stop him would be he's really good with this sword, so you have to make him not be willing to attack you. So either you have to take the you have to dress up as one of his favorite characters, or maybe use as a shield a poster, a, a very rare poster of something that he really values. And so you hold it up, and he can't swing because he might damage the poster. It actually is a bane to him because he, you know, to ward him off because you under, because you had to understand that culture to know what he valued so much, he'd be able to fight against the compulsion of the mm-hmm. homicidal sword. But wouldn't that backfire maybe if uh, you are dealing with opposite genders? If you're if lucky, you're it would. Up, if you're dealing with, <laughs> if you're trying to get past a male and you're dressed up as a female otaku that he really, really likes, instead of him being unable to attack you or attack the thing that you're using as your protection, this poster board... What if he starts obsessing over it? And this mm-hmm. could also backfire, especially if he starts stalking you. I mean, you could use him to your advantage as a sort of minion mm-hmm. if he reveres what you're cosplaying as so much. He might sincerely think that you are that person. Yeah. But how how much are you able to dupe them through the through the dressing? Yeah. Well, none yeah. of what you said sounds bad. It all sounds really good. <laughs> I yeah. mean, if they obsess with you, if they uh, whether they well, not necessarily because it, it, if you're trying to do something, and uh, depending on what their mentality is, they may think they're helping, but they might be getting in the way. So, how do you get rid of them without drawing attention? Yeah. I don't know. It sounds like an adventure. Yeah, and it may be a situation where. You know, the Bureau knows that the person's screen name, you know, Naruto25, bought it off of eBay. But it goes off to some anonymizer that they, they can't track from there. And But he did say in his comments, I'll be using this part of my costume in uh, oh, Securicon. You're looking for a Naruto cosplayer at a Japanese anime convention. 
And then you find out it's like you're looking at maybe dozens of different Naruto's walking around with seemingly period correct swords. Oh, great. Which one is it? And of course, as we said, and then of course, if we your people decide to dress up in some anime costume, they're getting stalked by the real person while you're busy checking out one of the one of the one of the uh, the non-threatening uh, cosplayers. <laughs> I'm going to send all the angry fanboys who who are after you for mispronouncing his name. I don't watch the series. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not actually I'm not. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> there is no excuse, John. I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, let's move on to something else. All right, you want to do another one? I have an idea. There you go. My idea is is that you have been converted to antimatter and must not directly touch anything or you will explode, and so will anything that you touch. Well, good luck with that. You know, so you're going to die in the vacuum chamber you, you, you put into. No, you, you can be put into some kind of a suit because your breath, anything that touches you, gets converted to antimatter, and then anything that it touches explodes. So the area that you breathe itself would turn into antimatter, and it would also be a problem. Oh, you got a conversion field around you, because otherwise your your first breath, you just explode at that point. Yeah, yeah of course. So you have to be in some kind of an environmental suit, maybe the entire party, some kind of an environmental suit, and th- and you have to deal with it that way. Well, how does your environmental suit survive? Because it's either got some kind of a... An, an inner magnetic field or it's magical in some way. We are talking Bureau 13 here. Yeah, it would have to be like a magnetic bottle, um, kind of like that bomb in Angels and Demons, the Da Vinci Code prequel, where they had to keep the animator bomb in a magnetic bottle, and if it got wonky, then it would explode. Or it has a magical repulsion field in it, so you're like in a kind of a bubble suit. Another great example of hard science fiction. Not. Anyway. <laughs> Ray Robertson can, ter- can, can make that out of a toothpick and saran wrap. <laughs> so it's basically the Midas touch. Right. Right. Well, that, that's one way of looking at it. Sure. Well, so, so if you've got a conversion field around you, maybe you don't turn, you don't blow things up when you touch them. What you do is you turn them to antimatter. But if you let go of them, they're still antimatter and they're outside your conversion field. Right, well, that's why you'd have to wear some kind of protection around you that kept stuff from getting away from you. Yeah. That's the, the initial stuff of the adventure. Something does this, and you have to go and stop it or find it or something like that. But the, the major complication is the fact that you yourself have been turned into antimatter and therefore have to deal with, with this aspect of you where you cannot safely touch anything or anybody. Mm-hmm. I think I agree with, with with Amber. It's it's basically the Midas touch, only with a little bit more dangerous version of the Midas touch. Is what it sounds like. Well, that's good. It makes for an interesting adventure. I mean, how many times have you ever done that? <laughs> but unfortunately, if the character doesn't realize what he's doing and he grabs a baseball and then throws it, adventure's over at that point. John, John, you of course set it up so that they know. Uh. Yeah, I mean, you have to set it up yeah. some way that they know, or otherwise it's end of adventure, and then what was the point? I think it's the antic blue glow around their body as the atmosphere touches their body and bounces off, and then it encounters the rest of the atmosphere, but that would kill you. Let's, let's use our imagination here. Let's say he's participating in some Bureau 13 experiment. There we go. He's in a chamber, and he's doing this experiment. The professor says, hold on, I have to do something real quick, and you know, puts him in some kind of suit really quick or something or whips up a spell and puts them in a containment thing and they're like what happened like well i don't know the experiment wasn't supposed to do that we got some kind of surge from some outside source i don't know what happened or you'd run it in media res it has already happened to him 
of an old James Blish Star Trek adaption. They're experimenting with a, with a teleportation device. You get teleported, but you get flipped, so to speak, and now you're the opposite. But the thing is, you're also still there. There's two of you. One's the mirror image of the other, and also made of animator. Now you got your play, so you get to play two play yourself twice if you if you want to at that point. So John, does this mean you got the the bad goatee Van Dyke beard going? I think it's probably more like Crichton from uh, Farscape when he got duplicated. Oh, three Crichtons, the future, the past, and the re- and the regular. Yeah, okay. But you don't want to create an adventure that's solely about one player character. This is the GM's job to make yeah. the adventure work and work out all the little details and stuff. Mm-hmm. But hold on, wait. It doesn't have to be any matter. I mean, that's just that's just a good example. That's like a good example of what Bruce is talking about here. It could be any variation thereof. Let's say uh, you get infected with some kind of magical infection or something, and anything you touch will die. Same kind of thing. You got to be careful what you touch and. The, the mission is to find out what happened to you, how it happened to you, and fix it. But it also has to be that you're still essential to the mission. They can't just put you in a confinement chamber and you just stay in there for the whole adventure because then it's no fun anymore. Right. It's, the adventure still has to be you dealing with these restrictions. See, what we're really talking about is throwing in a complication or a challenge to the players that throws them for a loop and they have to struggle in a fun way to overcome and sometimes use their advantage because if you have the ability, you know, like when I was first thinking about that, you know, I, uh, I said, man, if you spat at somebody, then your spit would become like a bomb. Yeah, unfortunately, you're in the blast radius. Well, John, John, <laughs> you're overthinking it. I wouldn't think a bomb so much as acidic. Yeah, it, it basically would burn right through whoever you spit on. Yeah, or you could turn into some kind of molecular acid. Everything that you touch burns. So, except for the special boots that you're wearing. I mean, it doesn't have to be antimatter, like Blick said. That's just the MacGuffin. It's yeah, just yeah. something where suddenly you're dangerous just by existing, and you ha- but you still have to be part of the adventure. You have to be there, you know, to to, to get it solved. So they can't bring the solution necessarily bring the solution back to you. You could take your hair and attach it, you know, and stick it into a lock and burn out the lock because your hair, you know, burn is is so molecular acid it just you know makes the thing turn into putty and you just pull it loose. I mean, taking yeah. this bad thing and turning mm-hmm. it into an advantage, even though it's dangerous, that's part of the fun of the adventure. You could also end up becoming ethereal. You may be visible but intangible. That could be another thing where it's like, okay, you can see, but you can't, you can still interact visually and vocally with the world, but you try to touch something in your space. But not materialistically. Right, yeah. Oh, God, what was it? Another Farscape episode where he went back to Earth and the younger self died, so Crichton himself ended up becoming sort of semi-visible but intangible, and he had to tell his mother about something, so... But I was also thinking of a variation of that, too. Instead of becoming intangible, you become time-shifted a half a second into the past. So you, you see everybody, you can, you hear them talk, but you can't interact with them because you're out of phase with them. And, this can happen, and, this, and that can happen to the entire team. That way you have the entire team trying to figure out how did we get shifted back in the past half a second. Have you ever watched The Langoliers? Yeah, like The Langoliers, yeah. Well, in this case, it's still a populated universe instead of an empty one. 
But, it, but hey, like yours is a good one is too. You know, is is unpopulated, and you're wondering what the heck's going on. You know, you're between you're between you're between seconds. Of course, you can't make it that because too many people know about that. You'd have to have some other twist to it. Yeah. 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 Right. That, that's or, not exactly uh, untrammeled territory. First, can there be an NPC in the party for long-term campaign? Sure. Why not? We do it in our groups. Okay. Just wasn't sure if that was typically a normal thing or or not. So where are you going with this? Well, a thought that I had, something that I personally don't see very often in sto- in campaigns, is protection, guarding, or escorting. And I don't know if it's because of something that I've done recently, or I have a strike of genius, but I had a thought of maybe the party is supposed to protect someone, like an heir to the throne or a child or something, but there's one particular person in the party, either a player or an NPC, who, even though their intentions are good, continually throw the party in more danger than they need to be in. Mm. If it's an NPC, they get shut down pretty quick by the players. If it's a player, at least you have an active you have an active helper trying to cause mayhem at that point. And this is where your game system helps because, like yeah. a game system like Fate, where you get points, you, know, you get these these Fate points for getting more complications. Having this NPC act to complicate the situation benefits the entire party, and so that kind of thing is welcomed. Or you as a GM can take one of those aspects that the player character has and says, I'm going to give you a fate point. I'm going to compel you to, to, use this, to use a negative version of this aspect. And, you know, you get a fate point off it, and it'll be fun role-playing. Right. Well, you, you don't want to have the GM basically making the, the, the NPC screw with the player characters because then they hate it. Yeah. You know, unless, of course, they bought into it from the start. Yeah, but Unless yeah. they're supposed to hate it, in which case, why haven't they gotten rid of that NPC? What makes him invaluable? Oh, dear God, I'm thinking Bob from the Dresden Files. He's obnoxious and he's irritating, but he knows stuff. I, I so mean, Peter... if the person who's constantly compromising the group's safety is the only person who knows how to safely navigate maybe the sewers or the only person who can speak the language of the place that they're in, there mm-hmm. has to be some sort of incentive for we're putting up with this because you provide this. All these subject matter experts could be used this way. Yeah. There's the White Witch of Fremont. The White Coven of Fremont is associated with the Bureau, but doesn't mean they actually have the same goals as the Bureau. I mean, her main goal is to protect the city of Seattle and the, especially the area of Fremont. So if the Bureau's goals happen to go counter to that, she will, she could be an formidable opponent. If the team's going to put the city in trouble, you may actually find yourself facing a, a, uh, a full-blown you know, uh, legendary witch uh, and her coven you know, opposing you. Amber, what would how would you use these types of characters that you're talking about in an adventure that isn't a normal type adventure? Well, the thing that I'm kind of imagining in my head is something similar to the recent games that came out from uh, The Walking Dead. Some mm. sort of cataclysm happened, not necessarily a zombie apocalypse, 
but still something devastating that has really divided people and become a all every man for himself sort of shindig and if you want to survive unfortunately you need to depend on other people so there's going to be that factor of trust there you're going to need survival skills how to hunt how to salvage how to build shelters how to maintain said shelters and what's the ultimate goal where are you trying to go at what point would you consider that end game that everyone is safe and everything's going to be okay from there on in okay so you're talking about a some kind of a cataclysmic type adventure that might be small enough that it doesn't completely restructure your campaign or it's one of those alternate dimensions that you get sucked into where it's completely different or it's one of those things where if you fix it then time reverts and everything is as if it was before right having to deal with some kind of a character that is hard to deal with due to some aspect that they have right and what are the consequences of getting rid of that character early in in later campaign if the party decides that they really don't want to put up with that character that's compromising their safety early on and they kick him out of the group well what happens later on when their particular talent is the easiest way to progress and so now they have to find an alternative way and Mm. the GM can kind of sit there and be well if you kept that character if you kept that guy in the party, if you kept him alive, he could have helped you here. Well, you don't want to be rubbing that in. You want to, uh, what Bruce has is the, was it, the three outs rule? You have three different ways to resolve a scenario. Right. Yeah, you kick the guy out of the party that, yeah, he's a Pima, but he has the, the means to do it. you still got to give the players a couple other ways where... They can, you know, still get things done. They, you may have to make them work for it. Like, okay, yeah, you kick the guy out of the, out of the group, but now you got to go through this, this, and this, and you can still get it done. It's just going to take you longer because the person who had the information, you realize, oh, we sent him packing, and he said, fine, I'm never coming back. And then the player, you know, the characters will be in the as the player is going. He was the one that knew that. Okay, yeah, we we really cheesed him off. We got to go this way to do it. But you still got to give him that out. If you kick the, the the annoying guy out, and there's no other way to you know resolve the adventure, then yeah, there's going to be a problem. You have a, a a catastrophe happen, but it's only temporary. Yeah, perfect one is you know something set down in New Orleans, and there's another hurricane, and one and you and one of your contacts down there is a Voodoo priestess who. You know, some of her habits are, you know, could be considered, you know, almost worthy of locking her up and staying in Bangor, Maine. But the trouble is, she is a powerful voodoo priestess, and you sort of have to kowtow to her sort of idiosyncrasies. <laughs> if you don't, yeah, well, she can be a, 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 a powerful opponent as well. And now you have a hurricane happening, and you need, and you desperately need her contacts within the Vudan culture to get this problem solved. And hopefully, you have not ticked her off. Yeah, you got to buddy up to your friend Matthias mm-hmm. Bold against the cult of Dagon. Oh. <laughs> that yeah. adventure hasn't been run too often. Oh. 
Oh, that's the lesser of two evils? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you actually, someone had some thoughts about that. Yes, yeah, I did. I, I posted about having to help a bad guy to beat a badder guy. And for this adventure to work, for this for this to work the way, you know, to make it different than usual, is that there is no real happy ending. At the end of this adventure, uh, you need to feel as though you you kind of sort of lost it. Because I'll tell you what, it's it sucks to lose an adventure, and I don't know how many of you have experienced this, where you've gone and you know, you've done an adventure that the game master set up, and you you hands down lost it. Like you came out of it on the wrong end, and you know there was a, a much better way you could have come out. You, you didn't complete it or or whatever. And in Bureau Thirteen, a lot of times that means end of the world, but this doesn't have to be like that. This could be where you win because you stopped the end of the world, but you're really lost because a lot of bad stuff happened. Uh, but you need to kind of make it so that they that they can't it, they can't have a happy ending, and what that does is it gives you a low point to come up from. So it gives the players a chance in their next adventure if they do everything right, they feel even better because the last time they lost one, they needed to they needed to regain one. So that gives yeah. Well, yeah, you need that, that redemption. Yeah, I mean, if they let the bad things happen, you know, where things back backpedal a little. Then yeah, you want to give them something just to the characters to feel better and the players because players don't like to lose. They don't play these games to lose. If they have to take one for the team, so to speak, you want to give them that chance to redeem themselves, where they're gonna you know kick butt and take names later. Well, in an unorthodox game like this, can you really say that they've lost if the game takes a different spin or if they don't achieve a particular goal? What if they may not have gotten the medallion of ultimate peace, but they did this other thing? Does that count for nothing? I'm not saying that they lose. They have a they have a feeling like it's like they win, and they they know they won, but somehow they feel like they've they've also lost. So, well, a good example is is like Hellboy two. You know, you had the 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 beautiful princess, right? Uh, that that was Abe Sapien was attached to, uh, and she dies. But they stopped the bad guy. But that was the only way to stop the bad guy. You had to let her die. So it was like – it's sort of like a – what do you call it? A pyrrhic victory where it's like you did the right yeah. thing. You saved the world and there was no other way to do it. There was no way around it. But at the same time, you still feel like poop because uh, you know the princess died. Like with Matthias Bold, it's like, oh, you got to help Matthias Bold to stop a, a, a worse evil. Yeah, you stop that worse evil – but Matthias Bolt is a master planner. This guy did not get where he was by being an idiot. So, yeah, you got him something that, yeah, in order for you to help him get something, he saved the world. But now, let's say he's got this artifact that he used to save the world. He's probably going to use it again later so you realize, yeah, we saved the world for now. Now we got to keep an eye on Bolt because he's got this thing. And we can't get it back from him. He's assuming the, the begotten of death, and you gave him part number five. Right. Right. Exactly. But by doing that, you stop the end of the world at that moment. Yeah. Right. As I said, if you're playing Bolt as a villain, you have to have the escape routes. You got to have the backup plans for the backup plans. And he's going to be like that. And if you're throwing Bolt against your players. The characters and players would know that Bolt would have, I have my contingency plan for my contingency plan for that contingency plan. 
And so if you're having to help bolt out, you already know it's the old phrase, when you shake hands with the devil, you keep your other hand firmly on your soul. Because you're you're playing the light the dark against the light type thing, or is it the light against the dark? And it's Machiavellian. Remember the Bureau 13 Code of Cascading Ethics. Do not make bargains with demons and gin. They're better at it than you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know what? And he's got to be a bit of a jerk about it when he wins, too. Oh, of course. I mean, he's not going to be doing the nanner nanner boo boo dance, but he's going to let you know with a oily smile that, yeah, you saved the world and furthered my plans along about by about 10 steps. Thank you. I'll remember you when I rule the world. Yeah, <laughs> you boys have potential. You ought to join my organization. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I'll give you a chance now. You you'll get in the 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 intro rate instead of what I usually you know make people give. You get the keys to the washroom. <laughs> Was it Amber? It reminds me of Cassandra. Congratulations, you found out my plan. You get to join uh, the Human Club. Okay. You are miniaturized. Oh. Definitely magic. Oh, no, it could be technological. Look at Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That's magic. Yeah, definitely magic. <laughs> it's magic. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much any way you do it, it's going to be magical. It's, ma- yeah, yeah. it's magic. <laughs> you can call it science all you want, but it's magic. Wait, yeah. wait. What if it's not us getting smaller? What if it's the world getting bigger? Then the gravitational forces crush you like a bug. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's magic. You don't magic. bring your logic into this argument. <laughs> Leave logic at the door. Yeah. That's fine. I, 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 hey, I'm fine with it being magic. Yeah, I'm fine with magic too. I mean, I, I, I remember reading the, the uh, Isaac Asimov had to had to rationalize the miniaturization the miniaturization process in Fantastic Voyage. He basically did a big hand wave because basically all the islands were still there, so it meant you had a a, a four ton submarine flying through the bloodstream of the sky. I don't think so, but anyway, yeah. Right, and on such a microscopic scale, the gravitational effects of that anomaly. Oh, it's like there's neutronium. He'll just drop, they just drop to the floor and keep on going to hit the core. The the point was is that it was part of of the concept. It was that one impossible thing that's part that that's yeah, yeah. every science fiction story. And yeah. and and but he, he didn't violate the rest. Yeah, that's true. But that, that's fine. I mean, we got a 13th pocket. We can miniaturize people. So the adventure is, it has, it has a very strong aspect of scale, where you change the scale of everything, and suddenly you have all these challenges you didn't have before. So, of course, you don't want anybody to have the ability to fly because that eliminates that whole scale challenge. Mm. Unless, of course, it's really huge, where you know, in order to cross a room, it's going to take five years. No, I I put it in in days. No, that's you, microscopic size then. Heck. And then every then once you go to microscopic, then you have a are you going to do a whole new world? Or are you actually going to deal with things as microscopic objects around you? Dust mites the size of of elephants and yes, you find out what's in your carpet really fast at that point. <laughs> turn out to be a really scary place. <laughs> I would yeah, or, wonder if you'd even manage to travel through your carpet. I mean, it it would seem like a thread forest. Or, or you could be borrower size, which is about uh, an inch, two inches, I think. So then the carpet would be really tall grass. Yeah, 
Yeah, but things are it, it'd be difficult to get around. It will take you a good day to get through a house. Hey, well, just just think uh, if you were three apples tall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Papa Smurf, Papa Smurf. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so so the evil magician goes and just says, you know, bang, you're all like the size of a borrower. Says, yeah, come after me if you can, and he turns around and walks away, and now you've got to deal with it. Or you get a package from Ray Robertson. If someone doesn't read the instructions, they just go and push the button. The shiny candy red button. <laughs> push the button. Do it. Do it. So the adventure is you're in your either in the uh, RV if you're a, a mobile uh, roaming agent, or you're in your base. The most dangerous two places in the world to be at this point. <laughs> or another thing you could do: everybody except for one of the party members. So he's carrying around everybody in his pocket, chasing after this guy. Don't worry, guys. I'll get you back to size. No, it'll be that annoying guy who's full-sized. The least physically competent. It's the computer geek that has to, you know, and it's like, okay, I may have to fight these guys. It's like, really? Your weapon is a keyboard. What do you do? Smack them in the mouth with it? You know. It's like- it works the best if one of the players has taken a, a, a familiar. The, the familiar hasn't been shrunk. So the cat now has to go look down and go, I can eat you right now. Or I can help you. You, know. you get to ride your familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Come, Fluffy, my nosy <laughs> mouse steed. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Another thing you could do, you could take the the player who's the least ambitious in the group, like whoever your weakest player is, the guy who who never makes any decisions and sits back and just does what everybody else wants him to do, and you make him the guy who didn't shrink. Mm. So now he has to step up and be the main guy in in the group. So you kind of force the other, uh, you know, the player who doesn't generally get involved out of his shell a little bit and maybe get him and get him a little more involved than he would normally be. Yeah. Now it uh, does, doesn't hurt that, we're, that they're bureau agents and we're going to assume that for, for decency's sake, everything on them shrinks as well. So they still have their communicators. Yes. So even though their the range on them are really short, you know, if there's, if he's got in the hand, he can at least have a conversation with them through their earbuds or whatever. You know, at least have a conversation and not and not deafen them every time he talks at them. If you were reduced one hundred, you know, like one one hundredth of your normal size, and your range was normally five hundred feet, now your range is five feet. It'd still be quite capable of reaching a normal sized person standing relatively next to you. Yeah, if if you if you want to make make it more interesting, only living organics get shrunk. After you dig out the pile of clothes you used to be wearing, now you got to figure out. Okay, we're naked and we have no weapons. And we're two inches tall. Well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> Unless you're talking about magic, John, your gun yeah. that fires bullets at this point is equivalent to someone sticking you with a hairpin. Yeah. Not a very long hairpin either. If you were really that size and you shot a bullet, I mean, they had a movie called Dollman that kind of dealt with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, would the bullets, how far would the bullets actually penetrate through flesh if you were one hundredth of the, the previous size? Well, well, considering how thick human skin is, you probably wouldn't pierce the skin. You, 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 you wouldn't get to the outer dermal layer. So it's a, it's a tiny, tiny hole, so why wouldn't it penetrate? And even if it did, who cares? I don't know. If you get a bullet in the brain, it's still a bullet in the brain. It's a very small bullet in the brain, though. Now, of course, of course, if if you lift the curse and all these bullets you've been firing into people, some guy's leg also unshrink, then it becomes an issue. Well, yeah, all of a sudden his leg gets very heavy. 
He's going to have a lot of subcutaneous lumps in his body. I would say no, depending how deep they are, you may actually get all of a sudden get an instant wound in his leg. I don't think so, John, because there wouldn't be any damage there. It would just simply be an object that's, some, that's at rest that would suddenly get much, much larger. It could have called a nerve cluster or possibly, I, I can't imagine it tearing an artery unless it's explosively enlarged. Well, they are enlarging. You know, if, if it's an instantaneous enlargement, you know, you were two inches tall, now you're back to your normal size in an instant. That's the equivalent of explosions. That's what I said. It had to be explosively yeah. larger. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, anyways, yeah. So miniaturization can be different. I, I don't. I don't know too many people who've done that. Or you could go the opposite direction and giant size them, I and imagine how hard it is for you to get around as a big giant person. The mess that would be. Yeah, and that, we'd definitely have to ignore the square cube law in that one as well. Yeah, or otherwise you'd be falling through the earth. Right, I'm saying it's magic. No, you just collapse into a pile of bones and guts because you can't support yourself. <laughs> yeah, it's magic. If you wanted to go outside, you'd probably have to get a costume of you like a, an elephant or something so that you could move around on all fours with this disguise over you because otherwise you'd, you'd be too noticeable. <laughs> Well, you can take a tip of hat from the amazing colossal man, and you're, you're growing. You don't instantly turn 40 feet tall, but, you know, you're getting taller very slowly. Sooner or later, you're going you're gonna to get so big, the Bureau's going to have to put you on an island somewhere. Yeah. Just stay away with guys with bazookas. They'll take your eye out. I do have an idea. It'd be a different adventure. Somebody brought up earlier demons. Mm-hmm. Okay, in a lot of the, the D&D, it's... Demons and devils are like lawful and chaotic evil. Let's say they have a problem that they need to to have like a conference and the Bureau is being asked to be an intermediary. So you have to sit there and you have to basically host a peace conference between two races. And it can be alien races too. I'm just using the demons and devils because of their... They're both evil, but one is lawful evil and the other is chaotic evil. Diametrically opposed on the law-chaos scale. And the Bureau has to sit there and make sure that these guys play nice. And you're pulling out diplomatic skills. If you draw a weapon, one of the races will think that you're back in the other race and that'll start something. You also have to keep them at bay. Like, okay, you know what? Separate corners now. Just because the one guy looked at you and said something in Infernal that in Abyssal is a really bad insult, settle down. And just you would need your diplomacy, your sense motive, maybe some bluff. Intimidate? Yeah, good luck. These guys have been fighting a thousand-year war. Nothing a human can do could scare them. Have you seen Supernatural? I saw a couple episodes of season five when a former when a planet and Jen were here. That's it. There's one particular character in Supernatural, Castiel. Oh, that! Oh, yeah, my daughter loves him. Right, yeah. he is an angel. And despite yeah. the fact that he believes, and I don't know the full plot, I kind of stopped watching it after it got all religious, because I couldn't follow the story after that. But despite the fact that he believed that Sam, one of the main characters, was part demon he still helped them again and again and again. My friend was watching an anime where there was one particular demon who kept screwing up being a demon. 
and <laughs> kept doing good things and doing good things. And when that demon finally got offed, he was resurrected as an angel. <laughs> My whole thing with this is that the Bureau, they're going to have to hide this, obviously, because, you know, it can't be a public thing. But, I mean, it can be entirely in their world. They're not having to mingle with the public, but what they are doing still pretty much will determine the fate of the world because if these demons and devils don't, or these two alien races don't settle their differences on whatever the matter is, pretty much then the Bureau's going to have to call, uh, and, it's, and it's pretty much in that case what I call an Omega-level threat, where you got two alien or supernatural forces fighting at Earth as the battleground, and pretty much everybody's going to know at that point. So, I mean, yeah, they got, the Bureau has, is basically walking on rice paper with these two races because of the fact that they know if they screw up or if they're not keeping an eye on both sides constantly and not only keeping them from attacking each other, but not doing anything that would set these guys off. Because, as I said, demons and devils, they've been fighting the in, in the D&D mythos, they call it the blood war. The demons and devils would probably know that the Bureau is... They've got some power, even though they're only about 150 years old, the organization. And so the demons and devils are also going to be trying to look to try to get something out of the Bureau. You know, the whole contract thing, or, you know, try to manipulate them. So the Bureau's also got to, again, keep their hands on their souls while they're dealing with two dark forces. I would just think that that would be a really interesting adventure because you can't sit there and just, okay, we hide, you know, we investigate the, the bad guy. You know, we either try to integrate them into society to make them useful, or we contain them, or we have to kill them. No, they have to sit there and be nice, and there's a lot more role-playing, because they know if they drop the ball on this, game over. One way to make it even more interesting for the players, this requires setup, of course, and prior adventures, is that they've dealt with at least one of each of each side, one devil and one demon, before. And they're the ones that requested their team. That would be a good buy-in. Yeah, it's like, okay, we know you guys are above and beyond normal humans. You've dealt with us. You have an inkling of the supernatural. And it's like a demon and devil would pat them on the head like, oh, you're cute. You think you know the supernatural and, and the other realms and all that. Okay, yeah, we'll let you play this because you have a little more knowledge than give you a couple thousand years and you might be considered a beginner by us. But yeah, we'll let you in on this because, okay. Jeff, if a team has dealt with a demon or devil, they've kicked their butt. Well, this this peace conference, I'm talking, these are the big players. They're going to look at them and say, okay, you beat one of our, I mean, not like a lemur, you know, like the, the CR1 type thing. Again, I use D20 parlance, which I'm familiar with. But I'm talking like maybe a mid-level, a beginning mid-level demon. But these are the Balors and the Pit Fiends that want to talk say they're meeting in New York. Right. Halfway through the conference, one leans back and says, uh, you know, I feel like taking in a Broadway play. Have anything you recommend? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Book of Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) And they want to use Earth as the meeting ground because, well, it's not one, it's not the other. Nobody has the home court advantage. Bureau 13, they have an inkling of the supernatural. So, yeah, we'll have them mediate. And they're like, you want us to mediate what? (laughs) <laughs> because they know these are the big boys on the block. These are the CR-20 people that 9mm pistol's not exactly going to help, and the cross are going to look and go, oh, how adorable. 
But you have to set it up such that the team actually has some way of helping them. You know, there's going to be some failing with these demons and, and devils that they can't do themselves. Therefore, there's going to be some sort of thing happening that only these naive, weak mortals can actually do to solve their problem. Yeah, it's going to be along the lines of because of our very infernal and abyssal nature, we need to meet and have some type of mediation and we'll have it here on Earth and even Bureau 13 might be a party to this negotiation. The Bureau's still going to have to act as a mediating force between these two because demons and devils, they get together. And again, I go by what you're going to find in the Monster Manual. Demons and devils don't they don't interact very... They don't play nice with each other. Usually, there's a reason why it's called the Blood War. So, yeah, they're, the demons and devils are going to have to be nice to each other. They're going to be have to treat these lesser beings nice. And Bureau 13 agents are going to be like, okay, we have beings that we would have to bring tanks against, and they're sitting in a rest. We're all sitting in a private room in a restaurant in the Bronx. You know, it's like they're sitting in luxury hotels. They, demons, devils, they, you know, devils especially are sitting in a luxury hotel. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're they're going to be at the Waldorf Astoria or something. Or, but yeah, they're they're going to sit there, and in order to be on Earth, they're going to be looking like businessmen and dignitaries. And of course, the the the, the concierge knows all of them by name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They've been here before. They, you know, they got rooms they go to all the time. Oh yeah, Mr. Paul. Yeah, good to see you again. We've kind of you know touched on this, talking about how the complication. I think this really different should directly affect the players, so mm-hmm. that they're part of it and not just merely spectators or pawns of it. In the case of let's say this demon thing, in order for the the players to be there, if they had, for example, to you know be injected with demon blood so that the demons could even tolerate them in their presence, or the devils the same way. Or their defenses would kill them unless they had something that identified them as being with one faction or another. And half the players could be with the demon faction, and half the players could be with the devil faction. Or they must divest themselves of all supernatural taint, which means if you have a party priest, yeah... we don't want it to completely screw with people's character concepts. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I did along this lines is when in one of my adventures called Bridesville, USA, is it was a town where everybody was getting married. And the Bureau sent them to find out if there was some supernatural force that was causing it. And of course, there was. All right. But it was also being caused by basic human need to make, get together and form bonds. And, that, and, and so even though... There was a supernatural thing going on. People from the surrounding states, having heard this, were coming in on the off chance that maybe they would find somebody that they really cared about, which also included, by the way, the player characters. All of a sudden, the player characters are finding themselves getting hooked up sometimes with each other, sometimes with NPCs, complicating the situation terribly, realizing that they're pawns to a certain extent of what's happening to them, at the same time not incapacitated so that they can continue to work through the investigation, but having to deal with these, these, these this romantic aspect, which 
in most games I have not seen. In most Bureau 13 adventures, you almost never see any real romantic thing going on between the player characters and the NPCs, or even between two player characters. Yeah. This particular scenario forced it to happen because you were literally in love with the first person you saw that was of the appropriate orientation to yourself. Sounds to me like somebody needs to start queuing up the Barry Manilow music. You're also saying, well, you know, it's going to take 25 minutes, you know, to run these samples. Dibs on the, the RV back room. John, were you trying to do a Barry White thing there? Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I ran into conventions, you had to have the right group of people because some people absolutely got totally creeped out by constantly having people trying to be with them romantically and and make a, a romantic connection to them, especially the NPCs, being that I'm a guy who's therefore playing a female character with mostly male players. So, But I'm just saying that with the right group of people, you're, you're turning down some people, but, but ultimately you're going to choose somebody because you're a person, you're a human being, and it is in your nature to want to make that kind of connection with somebody. Right. And, and almost all the players, by the way, are, are, are single. I mean, I don't mean players. I meant the characters are single because, most, again, most people do not play married characters in Bureau 13. So I can see a problem with, it, with the very Catholic, Father Murphy. What's wrong with that? He gets married. He's an ordained priest, Catholic priest. He would have to deal with how yeah. true to his vows he truly yeah. I mean, you could, be, you could be deeply in love with somebody and still remain chaste. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in the back whipping himself. I can't stand these sinful thoughts. <laughs> make it stop. Make it stop. No, I think he'd be he'd be whipping himself saying mia culpa. <laughs> He's not an Opus Day, so he won't be Opus Day. Yeah, I was thinking. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you have these characters who have made vows. And you have a character, for example, who has made a vow to marry a, a particular person. Okay, who might even be engaged to somebody else, yet they come to this town, are they still available? Are they still on the block? They don't have a ring on their finger. And if you do get married to that person because you, you, you basically fall prey to this, this, this erogenous lovemaking field, what do you do at the end of the adventure? Is it time for an annulment? Do you say, well, you know, it's time to become a Mormon? Uh, you know what? Yeah. How do you do? I mean, this, these are good things to happen to characters because they cause character development. I think the first thing you ought to say is thank you. I'm just thinking of the shape shifting alien who's part of the team, and he's looking around, going, "Mary, no one here." This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Amber. It's all fun and games until the DM rolls a one. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. 
Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.